When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, general partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is Yuri Yakubchik, who is the founder of Elemy, one of the fastest companies to reach unicorn status of all time in less than 14 months. He is also an active angel and advises and works with a lot of companies. But these are just the headlines. Get the real story on Founders Uncut. So even though LME has had an incredible rise and incredible growth period over the past few years, it didn't start as an easy journey. In fact, Yuri pivoted the business multiple times before getting to what LME is today. So why don't you take us back, Yuri, to 2019? What did the company start as and how did that pivot process go? Yeah, so... That was a really interesting time. It was a very stressful time. And uh, we started out as something totally different than we are today. So we started thinking about how do we build software basically for the healthcare uh, industry in the broadest sense of the word. <clears throat> so we didn't quite know what that even meant when we had started it uh, and kind of going down this journey. But that was that was our humble beginning. And we actually got a very early on, a pre-seed investor that really enjoyed that vision, uh, Ben Ling of Bling, uh, Bling Capital, who's a great partner to us today. Um, so we were thinking about maybe building an enterprise SaaS business there or an SMB SaaS business there. Um, and that, that was the origin of you know, what became uh, a child mental health platform in the United States. And as you pitted, how many iterations were there before you got to where you are today? And what did you learn from that? What was... What was the right things you did of how you knew when to shut things down and move to the next one? And what was the challenges of doing that? It must have been like four or five, maybe even five. Yeah. Um, so uh, some some were pretty rapid. Some were, you know, a little bit slower. Um, I would say maybe, you know, the first idea, we sat on it for maybe two quarters, three quarters. We we're also looking at the adult behavioral health space quite a bit at things like uh, substance use disorder, uh, things like eating disorders. Uh, so we were looking at a bunch of other sort of segments of, of behavioral health. We looked at building software, like marketing software for um, healthcare clinics. Uh, and those were, we, we even looked at actually starting a, a, a pediatric clinic of our own. Wow. Um, so there were a lot of different sort of scenarios there. And I would say we probably spent a month or two on average yeah. for, for, for each of these. But some of these actually got some legs, right? Some you got to like tens of thousands of monthly recurring revenue. And so yes. at that point, how do you decide to shut it down? And how do you know it's not the right thing? Like what, what was for you the indicator that's like we're on the right path? So this was my third business that I founded. And I went passive on pre previous businesses because I didn't see an opportunity to build a really large, impactful international platform uh, very rapidly. Um, so, you know, the sort of scale 
piece I learned over time is really, really important to me. So just because something was making, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of MRR or hundreds of thousands of dollars of run rate, annualized run rate, uh, relatively quickly um, didn't necessarily mean that, you know, we were going to continue working on it. Um, so there, there were actually a couple examples of that, um, of that happening. Um, so I guess just the scale, again, was the really, really big uh, thing for me. And with child mental health, we just realized this is a big international problem that where, where we can build, and it's a white space where we can build a huge, huge company. Yeah, and completely ignored. I think, you know, um, I have a little bit of an unfair advantage on this one because we we looked at it and you're one, of the, you're one of the ones that got away from me. One of the only deals I've lost, sadly, um, that is still painful, but uh, but it's okay. We still love you anyway. Um, but truthfully, like the autism care market in the U.S., people might not know, and we won't go into in tons of detail, but getting care for your children is really hard. It's really painful. And like, because the U.S. system is so convoluted in that way, you can actually like deliver better care more quickly and at a better price point and have better consumer experience altogether, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, there's not a lot of spaces where that holds true. Exactly. And so um, you also have sort of a personal tie to this mission as well. And so did that come into factor at all as you thought about the different pivots or no? Yeah, so I, I wanted to do something that I really genuinely cared about. I think what I, in my early days starting out as an entrepreneur, it was about making ends meet to to an extent. So whether you know I was, you know, you know, tutoring or I was coaching someone or you know doing doing a little hustle for money or maybe selling textbooks online, whatever that thing was, it was to make ends meet as an entrepreneur early on. And then over the years, um, some things worked out. Um, some businesses I've started ended up growing and and, and doing well. And at that point. It was like a question for me for like, what am I going to do that I'm really, 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 really passionate about that I can wake up every day, doesn't feel like work, yeah. just feels like I'm solving something for the world. So uh, child mental health was that thing for me. And uh, the reason why it, it, it was that thing for me is a, a, a few bullets. One, I come from a family of clinicians. So my father's a retired pediatrician. Um, my mother is a retired um, OBGYN. And uh, I, I saw broadly in the U.S. healthcare system, but also in the Canadian one and the European one, uh, I had an interesting vantage point where my family traveled around quite a bit. I saw them really having challenges navigating through the system as clinicians. And then when I was very, very young, I was diagnosed with incredibly severe ADHD, um, like outlier severity levels of, 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 of ADHD. I couldn't sit in a chair, I couldn't go to school. And uh, thankfully, I had my parents that I could get support from and they were able to get me a really, really good therapist that helped me out, a really personalized experience for, uh, for me and, 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 and for my family there. Um, but as I sort of take a step back, not everyone has the same access to clinicians that I unfairly perhaps had through my yeah. parents. So. It was just those two pieces that were quite exciting yeah. um, to me to like kind of think about. And then I saw that there was a big opportunity for software to play a part in the solution. Yeah. Um, so um, that's that. That was sort of the the, the beginnings of us of us working on on LME. Yeah, and you've had incredible impact. And I just stayed on that for one second as you as a yeah. child. That must have been so hard to go through because like even navigating what that means, like putting a label on yourself yeah. as a child. It's so glad that you had the help. Um, to get through that, but any any lessons that you can give other people from going through that as a child, or do you think that changed kind of how you became who you are today? Nothing is as bad 
or is as good as it may initially seem, okay? Especially like the things that seem really, really bad or things that seem really, really good, you know, there's sort of a convergence to some sort of median, okay? Yeah. So I would say that out loud. Yeah. Um, whenever, you know, you know, one is sort of feeling uncomfortable or overly joyous or excited, um, maybe there's some complexity again and like they're, they're going through something really challenging. <clears throat> I find that's something that helps me yeah. on my side. So like the ADHD thing was pretty bad, but other than that, and it was very tough. I was getting a lot of negative feedback from virtually everyone around me, um, uh, particularly the teachers. Um, but, you know, it just wasn't in retrospect that bad. Yeah. Okay, it was it was it was it was just a a, a, a situation that I had to work through, yeah. and you know, there everyone's got their own things that they have to work through on 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 their side, and 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 that was mine. Yeah, and I feel like it's hard to just it's hard to remember in the moment when the things are happening, good or bad, that you'll get through them, right? And then the next totally. thing will come, which will also be good or bad. Um, and just closing out the pivots, because I think also to your point about getting through something, was that hard for your staff? And how did you think about like, because uh, yeah. you have different people that you yes. need depending on each type yes. of those businesses. So, you know, I surround myself with people that are quite different than uh, than I am from a, like, you know, like professional background, non-professional background, shout out like a, like a pretty diverse environment around me. And I find that is a really, really good environment for me to sort of, you know, like riff with someone that has a different perspective on life than I do. But a, a consequence of that when you're really, really early is you might be working with people that, you know, for me, in my, in my case, you know, are much more conservative perhaps th than I am or aren't as uh, mobile, for example, or, you know, fast moving with jumping from one business idea to another as, you know, I might be, you know, on, 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 on my side of the house. So, I saw, you know, when we were starting out, LME or what eventually became LME was a group of people that uh, a lot of them I went to college with. And I knew them for a really long time, actually. Um, I guess at that point for almost like a decade. So they uh, are very different people than I am, but we have this shared sort of story of going to college together. And they've never seen anything like this. This is their first time being like really early on a tech startup team. So they were sort of shocked, you know, almost, you know, dare I say appalled uh, by, you know, the speed with which we might, you know, be working on one thing yesterday and literally come into the office and be working in a completely different company the next day, jumping from, you know, SaaS soft, you know, a SaaS business model to a child mental health thing and maybe a few other business models, brick and mortar model in between, you know, adult behavioral health model in between. That, you know, was certainly, I think, jarring is the word that I would use um, if you haven't seen it before. But what we had as a rock to sort of lean on and, um, you know, the, uh, the, the way I would maybe even think about it is, um, uh, is you know, like, like the, the uh, battery that we had that didn't fully empty out was just that long relationship that we had that was non, of a non-business nature, yeah. just a friendship that we had where there was a sense of trust and commitment to us seeing something through, pushing on it, uh, that I think got us through those uh, through those moments. But there were definitely some funny times uh, yeah. where, you know, you know I, I'm, I'm calling, I'm getting the whole team together on a call and we're do, I'm announcing a big pivot. 
okay? Yeah. In the really, really early stages. I remember one of the guys on the team uh, was, uh, was getting a haircut at that point. And, you know, I remember his feedback <laughs> was, you know, uh, hey, guys, I'm currently getting a, uh, a haircut on my side. And uh, I'm not going to, like, make a scene in this, uh, in this hair salon, but this is just ridiculous. I don't know where this is going. Let's just talk about this tomorrow. And thankfully, by tomorrow, he had, you know, kind of calmed down, like, relaxed, kind of got a little more bought in. But there were just funny moments. And I remember being, like, on an Amtrak, my signal uh, Amtrak train. Yeah. It's a train system in, in the U.S. And, like, you know, the train's making all these train sounds, and there's, like, the conductor, you know, announcing something, and I'm, like, trying to, be, you know, be serious with the guys and sort of, you know, make sure that we actually do this. But I've done this, I probably pivoted a business over a dozen and a half yeah, times. across three different ventures. Yeah, You've seen yeah, so, so, so it brings just emotion, but <laughs> for others, you could imagine, it's like, wow, like, what is going on here? Maybe I'm going to implement this strategy, like, when you don't want someone to react too much, but actually, ironically, I had two emergency board calls last week with the same company, and in one, we had to do it when everyone else was free, but one person was getting a haircut, actually, and in another, <laughs> I had just landed on a plane, like, taxiing from the runway, and I was like, I'm going to talk really quietly. So th th these things happen. I actually tell people when, um, when they're thinking about joining a startup, I'm like, if you know what role you want to do and you really want to feel like you're doing that role for that company, join after like 50 people, seriously, yes. when like product market fit. But that's zero to one. Like when I joined a company at 12 people in New York, the the role they hired me for, they killed that entire strategy like two days later. Right? Totally. So it's just changing a lot totally. at that stage. A hundred percent. And look, what I would actually say is if the business is one of the faster growing companies, if you're like a top fifth percentile in terms of uh, user adoption, some revenue, whatever that growth metric is, I think even past the Series B, you should expect for pivots to actually continue. Yeah. Um, and it's obviously more high stakes, it's more serious stuff, and you have a very large team that you have to be sort of working with. But I would say, you know, good pivots, I mean, look at look at uh, Meta, mm -hmm. you know? Totally. Um, you know, the, the pivots don't really, I, I, th I think some of the best founders that I've sort of met are defined by their ability to do pivots. I think actually in the later stages mm. of their of their company uh, journeys and work through those moments. There's there always seems to be this kind of second or even third act mm -hmm. um, to these businesses. Yeah, even Amazon. They, I guess right. it's, it's always an evolution, right? So you're either totally. always responding to the market you're in, or you're not. Hundred percent. Um, even with Elemy, I think like for the supply of therapists for autism yes. care is very low, and so you have to get supply. But maybe in ten years that'll be different, and you'll have yes. to. It's all an evolution. Um, interesting. So once you decided to do Elemy, you have to have scaled faster than almost any other company in history. You went zero to 20 million run rate in one year, if I'm correct. Yeah. So most Even people- a little bit more. A yeah. little bit more. Yeah. So most people don't do that. So tell us what that feels like. Um, what is the good and bads of scaling that quickly? So, you know, the revenue is an output of product market fit, of fast product market fit. So- for a entrepreneur, uh, you know, like me, you know, I think having really amazing product market fit is 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 just an awesome feeling. It's like it's like the best euphoria that you can have. It's like, wow, what I'm doing is actually useful. Mm -hmm. It actually matters. It's actually impactful. Okay, so I think. Uh, the revenue growth is just a an, like, kind of like an end, like a like an ending result, an output of of that in 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 the short term and and, and medium term. So 
uh, that was really, really kind of interesting and amazing that like euphoria continues to carry us today, uh, coming from that, stemming from that product market fit. Now, I think when you're growing very quickly, you always have trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And I think having really good partners uh, around the table uh, that are either investors or advisors or friends um, around you that can give you perspectives mm -hmm. in complex situations where you have to make those trade-offs is really, really important. Um, so I think you know the trade-offs that you have, of course, inevitably with a very, very high growth situation is sort of, you know, thinking about um, the human factor, thinking about the regulatory factor, for example, in a business like ours. So we could have grown much, much faster, actually, uh, on our side, and we still can. Um, knowing where to draw the line, how to think about it, um, Himantaneha, who's one of our board members and investors at Journal Catalyst, uh, talks a lot about responsible innovation. Mm -hmm. um, so out with blitz scaling and in with perhaps responsible innovation, that doesn't mean that you, you stop growing, right? You're still a growth business and you're trying to scale rapidly uh, into a market, but you never want to do so at the expense of uh, you know, certain things like positive experiences, positive medical experiences in our space. If you're a fintech, right, mm -hmm. you don't want to, you know, lose someone their deposits mm -hmm. or have some atrocious fraud that happens on, on, on your platform. So I think that's what Iman means about responsible in, in, in innovation. I think that's sort of how we've thought about our, our business, where you want to make sure you're not just, it's growth at all costs. That's really not actually, right? And I think some of the correction stuff that's happening today uh, and has been happening over the last couple quarters has been actually really positive, I think, for, for the ecosystem. It's painful in the short term. And of course, it's, you know, there's people losing their jobs and there's like corrections left and right. Um, and there's business model changes. But I think overall, it's a positive thing for the tech ecosystem to go through something like this, where you're thinking about the um, you know, the full impact of the actions that you're taking uh, beyond just like absolute growth um, yeah. at, and, and at, at, at any cons cost. And I think across a 10-year, 15-year timeline that ultimately lends itself to actually the largest companies, um, sort of that, that they'll be, being able to build the largest company that you actually can. Yeah, I think we are definitely exiting the era of growth at all costs into something that's like sustainable growth, right? Yeah. Consistently. And it's interesting because in, in a mission-driven business, right? The, um, honestly, almost the faster you can serve more families, the better because 100%. autism intervention early. I remember even in my diligence, I was worried about like, what if there's misdiagnosis? And every parent I talked to was like, no, no, no. If I don't have any diagnosis, I can't get my kid help. I can't get them out of the cafeteria. I can't, you know, I can't actually yes. help them. Yes. But I think to your point, you also want to ensure good customer experience, regulatory. I think you, that that trade-off is really hard to make. So as you're making these decisions, right? You're deciding yeah. to grow to 20 or more than 20 the first year and you're making yep. these trade-offs. How do you know when to like listen to good advice? You have a lot of great mm -hmm. VCs around the table in this case or great advisors, yeah. um, but you also have your own gut. Like how do you know when to listen to other people and take feedback and when to actually just like follow your gut around something? I think my approach is collect as much feedback from the smartest people that you can for any big decision. Talk to like a dozen people, 
right about it in like excruciating detail and as excruciating detail as 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 you can um so and then collect it right lay it all out and then make the decision yeah. right so i think my perspective is like if i'm seeing a lot of really really smart people around me that i trust who have been doing business with for years yeah. doing business well with for years um you know and they're all saying the same thing yeah. right uh you know if it quacks like a duck maybe it's a duck in that case <laughs> yeah. right so i don't really get to yeah. you know uh i think emotional as a as a founder about my way or the highway i just want to make sure we have the right kind of solution that yeah, it's that, like the right decision it's like the right decision yeah and just me and i i find again the best thing that helps is just listening and getting everyone's perspectives jotting it down letting it simmer for a couple of days maybe maybe longer maybe shorter and actually you know absorbing uh giving enough time to actually absorb um the decision um being being made yeah i think that's a really important point is like time for absorption is probably something we don't often think about in yeah. a very fast-paced yes environment um and so you, i feel like more than most founders and this says a lot cuz most founders want to scale you have this like innate need to be on something that's scaling and you've made the decision in some cases to like leave something or yeah. choose a different business model if it wasn't yes. scaling quickly enough you know tell us a little bit more about like why you think that is and how how you make those decisions for yourself yeah so i um i founded a telecommunications business um before uh prior prior to getting involved with LME and uh and leading LME and founding LME founded a hotel business also so very different industries and i think for me a uh, scale of impact right was always like the thing that was kept coming back as like the thing that i learned was like really really important to me mm-hmm. and you know i went passive on the other on the other businesses that are doing quite well actually mm-hmm. um wonderfully run companies by my business partners there uh but i again you know sort of you know took took a step back because of the scale factor i just saw an opportunity to build something that was maybe 100 times larger yeah. um very quickly and every time i did that actually you know i was able to sort of get involved with a bigger and bigger um operation which just means you're able to impact people's lives more which for a technology person like me is like the ultimate yeah. end game yeah i mean you get one life you might as well create as much impact as you totally. can right totally so you recently became a unicorn company so i have to ask like does that matter like what does it feel like to be a unicorn company does something change when that happens like what does it actually mean Yeah, you know, I actually just fly on a cloud now and um, you know, it's it's really nice, uh free food everywhere and it's 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 beautiful. There's champagne coming yeah, down on tap. Yeah, you know, it's really really great. So look, I think that jokes aside, I don't think for me personally like does it change how I act or how I behave? Like do I, you know, walk around with a certain jump in my step or, you know, do, has my ego increased? I li- I like to think not at all actually. I'm still the same a guy that you know at 21 was like hustling to like think about how do i get into the tech game how do i build a product that matters for people i was doing that when i was 18 also 17 also so i don't think like the nature and the spirit of like who i am um you know ha- has changed but i think access does change mm-hmm. i think access to quality talent quality business partners when you get a little bigger it gets you know you 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 often just get more people that you can partner with 
that are really helpful, of a really high quality. It's easier to get people's attention um, from a sort of a business uh, collaboration perspective. So I think that's like the biggest thing that I think changes. And, you know, I have had some founders that were I perhaps, you know, funded them or I, you know, advised them and or advised their board. And there were situations as, as one example where that, you know, they have a really, really good fund that is giving them a term sheet at 900 million post. Okay. And they really, really love this fund, but the fund like won't budge on price. Right. And meanwhile, you have another fund that maybe they don't like as much. It's still going to be an okay situation, but they don't like it as much as this like fund that's giving them 900 million post. And that fund is giving you, let's say, a billion. Okay. It's interesting because specifically in that scenario, right, um, it actually matters, I think, quite a bit because the level of sort of even just like SEO, like brand building that you get, um, you go from, you know, being covered, you know, by your own Medium posts that you wrote uh, uh, and, <laughs> you know, putting up on LinkedIn maybe to being covered by, you know, uh, Bloomberg, Right. Uh, and that just, again, it just drives more access. It drives access to capital, to people, and it allows you to sort of go after your mission a little, a little bit more. So in those situations, you know, I kind of have to ask the founder, like, you know, how, just how much do you like this other VC more? Let's like break it down. Like how rational yeah. is this? Because there is obviously an impact that you get from a brand building standpoint for your company and the things that you're doing across your stakeholders. So um, you wouldn't take it if you didn't like the other fund. But if you like liked them both, you would. it matters. It's on the margin. It matters. Yes. Yeah. 100%. And you mentioned being an investor, which you are, you know, becoming a prolific angel and advisor and you've done some stuff in venture studios. So you've, you've definitely helped a lot of companies and some of which I know and I'm glad you're an angel investor in. How does that change your lens? Does that make you think about being an operator differently or what do you look for in teams when you invest? I love investing because... It teaches me how to be an operator uh, better. And then I love being an operator because it teaches me how to be an investor better. So I love being like a player coach. Um, so there's a few different things that I've seen that have been quite, I think, interesting. Different approaches to storytelling. Different approaches to uh, how to do fundraises. You sort of learn like there's no, you just have to be authentic to who you are. If someone's just giving you this like black and white response to like, hey, this is how you should do it. A lot of times there's a lot of gray mm -hmm. in this in this world and different approaches. And, you know, there's people that are sort of softer touch. There's people that are a little bit more aggressive as founders. Um, and again, look, there's no like right or wrong, but you have to be authentic to yourself. So I, I find that the founders that are the, like the most authentic mm -hmm. uh, to who they are and what they're trying to do um, end up like just like doing, and of course, uh, the ones that are ambitious and maybe a little bit have a chip on their shoulder. Um, those are the ones I sort of look for uh, to, to, to get involved with very, very broadly. And I started appreciating that a little bit, I guess, more. There's a lot of other things that I've seen along the way, just, um, you know, uh, not sacrificing like quality or excellence um, in the early days, like under any circumstance, is sort of a, 
is sort of a, like a lesson that I think I've learned with time, looking at my portfolio, looking at who's performed, who hasn't, um, that I think has helped me with my business. And do you mean um, not well. sacrificing excellence like in terms of hiring or in terms of product Ac- or across anything? Across the board. Across the board. Yeah, across the board. Just like not settling in those early days. Because if you start settling, the thing is like, it's this inertia that starts developing and permeating in your business. And if, you know, it, it naturally happens, I think, over a life cycle of business with time, um, regardless. And it's a very hard thing to fight um, against. And if it happens early, you know, that you're just, you know, you're you're really handicapping yourself uh, quite, quite substantially. So having like really high adherence to standards, like really early on and like continuing that and not, especially, you know, in businesses like, again, FinTech, digital health, it's particularly important to have those standards. Those like make or break you, you know, three, four years down the line. They, and they could mean, you know, uh, the difference between uh, in year six or seven, the difference between a $40, $50 million company or $80 million company and like a $3 billion company. And let's dispel some myths. So first of all, you I meet four or 500 founders a year as an investor, and you are one of the best fundraisers I've ever seen. But I know it wasn't always that way. You know, you've been across lots of businesses and I know you've had some really challenging rounds. Like, what have you seen across three different businesses? Of What have you gotten better at fundraising? And like, what fundraising advice would you give people to, to make it easier? It's always painful, but making so, it easier. I, I appreciate the statement. I, I would prefer to be the best founder that you've seen, though, not just the best fundraiser necessarily. Um, but I, I'm working You're on that. You're one of my I'm favorite wor- founders. I, I can't have that. favorites, obviously. <laughs> Look, I think like the fundraising thing is just important to like accomplishing a mission, mm-hmm. right? And what I generally find is that it's not that like one founder is like just this like incredible fundraiser. I, I have a slightly different perspective based on what I've seen just generally with, with founders. Founders are generally kind of bad at fundraising, like very broadly speaking. It's kind of a blank statement, but I find like the stories are just not very tight. Just kind of like start going off, like rambling about stuff. And I was doing a lot of that, okay? I was doing a lot of that and like I really, I recorded myself, I practiced explaining, developing my pitch. Um, and it, it, it doesn't just help with fundraising, it helps with like interviews and this and that. It's just good storytelling, answering questions cleanly and, 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 and properly perhaps. So in the early days, I think I just wasn't very strong at that, you know? So I needed to practice like anything, you know, there is a form that you have to sort of figure out for yourself and you have to be authentic to yourself at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know, if you're a if you're a dynamic, high energy person, you know, it's not like don't use your hands. Like, hey, you know, be animated, yeah. be excited, you know, be excited, be yourself, but also know how to explain things right clearly for people that have five minutes to chat with you and otherwise are like checking their emails potentially in in the background in certain cases, right? So, yeah, no, I think the storytelling is like to your point. It's not even just for a fundraise. It's really for everyone who you're trying to convey your message. Yes. To. I find, I find um, broadly speaking, there's a couple other challenges that I detect. Um, product vision and familiarity with numbers in a business is often quite telling for me around the maturity of, of, of a founder. Um, and I've, I've seen scenarios where just you start digging into the numbers and really trying to understand them. In a market like this, the numbers like matter and knowing your numbers like really, really matters. 
uh, and people are actually studying them and double clicking on 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 things. And I think you know if you're sort of you know saying one number that ends up actually being a very different number. It could just really—it's like relationship building, you know. You know, you know whether it's you know meeting an investor for the first time or a job interview or whatever. Like, just being super off on like deeply analytical pieces that where it's almost like you know, are you playing a trick on me or what's going on? You just lose credibility, right? You lose credibility pretty quickly. That's exactly right. So yeah, I think I I I think that's another thing where I, I see where. People, I don't think, value that perhaps enough. It's actually a really good point. I, I haven't thought about it as directly, but I, I remember there was a founder once who like told me they were very data-driven and numbers people, and then like they really didn't know their numbers. Right. And then there was a guy who I think like kind of actually presented himself as much more of an artistic founder, because he was. Yeah. But like this guy was a numbers guy. Like he right. knew the numbers of his business. And the thing is, is that the pre-seed and seed, obviously the numbers are going to change. It's more just about understanding what's driving it. Yes. And actually, I think as we go from this growth at all costs to sustainable, yes. was it sustainable innovation or responsible innovation? Responsible innovation, that's responsible right. Responsible innovation moment. Um, I think that the shape of the businesses that you're building are important to think about. A lot of people are just like, I 100%. like this idea, but you know, you've talked today, actually Matt Robinson was one of my recent guests and he talked about like, what are the cash flow shapes of your business? Yes. And you've talked about the scale and the impact and yes. the numbers. And I think just taking a hot second before you found a company, besides I just, I know there's a problem here and I like it, yes. to say, is this actually a viable business? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually also important. Super, super, I think, astute point. There's an interesting uh, dynamic in the Valley where I think, you know, European businesses seem to actually have this one key advantage that I've seen um, over sort of the philosophy or rhetoric that I hear in the Valley where, you know, in, in, the, in the Valley, it's just like, you know, make something that people want, period, right? And I think the margin profile, cash flow profile, when you're setting out to build a business, you know, that's really, really important, like important stuff. You don't want to just be, look, if you're, if you're trying to build a business, it's a for-profit company, right? It's going to have to generate cash flow at some point, Right. And um, I think ignoring that, not knowing, to your point, how that profile um, of, of, of the cash flows looks like and, 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 and where it starts sort of, um, you know, delivering uh, uh, is, 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 is actually something that I see like in Europe, there's a little bit more of a focus on that than, than in, San, in San Francisco, where you're just like sort of like, I, you know, it's a little bit more, for lack of a better word, you know, we, we work with, you know, folks at ABC, Founders Fund, and they sometimes, you know, Talk about this. There's a lot of like virtue signaling um, in 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 the valley that sometimes can be toxic to knowing the numbers really well, um, and sometimes it could it, it could seem like you're a little bit too much of a mercenary if you're talking about making cash yeah. in a business. But on the day, these are you know for profit companies that have shareholders, have you know pension funds, uh, you know that are LP investors and these VCs yeah, that. I mean and they're, you know, you want to make sure that you're building something of value for the long term. Yeah. I actually think I'm so glad you said that. I think we don't ever, I haven't talked about it on this show ever, like LPs, but I think sometimes VC, entrepreneurs think VC money grows on trees. I assure you it doesn't. We're fundraising right now. Um, but, you know, the, some of the LPs that would invest in a company like ours are like a pension fund. So, yes. um, you know, I know a fund that has the firefighters pension and yeah. New York invested in them. If they don't deliver a return, that firefighters pension is at risk, totally. right? And so there's a real cyclical thing here, but venture is not meant for every business, right? If it, no. It's like rocket fuel, and if you're not a rocket, it's probably not going to go well. So totally. if, if the business you want to found has a 10% margin, 
but you really feel passionate about the business, definitely do it, but maybe don't take venture or think about how you fund it and think about how you totally. structure it. So 100%. That's a really good point. Um, one last myth I wanted to spell, and I feel like to your point about being on a cloud earlier, there is a lot of feeling that because it's kind of in vogue to be a founder and there's shows like Silicon Valley, I think people think that it's, you know, it's hard, but it's not that hard. And people have drinks on Friday and Thursday at 5 p.m. And, you know, I know you work incredibly hard and, you know, every founder I know does. Tell us a little bit about like, what does it actually look like? What's your day-to-day? What's your week-to-week? And, you know, what does it look like for you to be a founder? So my background is I'm from Belarus and in, in Eastern Europe. And I left at a young age with my family to Canada and then the United States and had a very humble upbringing. Uh, being a physician in Eastern Europe doesn't quite pay the same as being a physician uh, in the West. In Belarus, it was a couple hundred dollars a month, um, you know, like a few thousand dollars, low thousands a year. Um, so it was a very humble upbringing, and we moved to Canada with basically nothing, and then the U.S. with basically nothing. And it was a lot of, you know, my parents kind of hustling and working, um, and they made a lot of sacrifices for me. Uh, First, you know, this big, big move from Belarus to Canada and this big, you know, immigrant story, you know, on, on their side to, you know, get get me out to the U.S. And I think for me, if I'm not working harder than than basically everyone around me, that's a, that's a big problem, actually. So that, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of sort of folks and, and considerations, you know, there's a lot of folks flagging considerations around mental health and having a balance, you know, perhaps a work-life balance. I think that a being a founder of a successful business is extremely difficult. I think you need to have your headspace definitely in the right place. I think it's extremely competitive in a lot of these markets. You know, behavioral health, for example, in America is a very, very competitive industry. It's a very serious industry um, where you're working with people that have very complex conditions. And I think my view is I'm seven days a week um, on this, no, like no exceptions, basically. Um, and I think I owe it to my employees, my business partners, the families I work with. And honestly, it's super fun. I enjoy it. And I don't, you know, I don't really have, you know, I, I'm really lucky that I don't have, you know, the greatest, I would say, anxiety issues or, or, or something like that around the process. And I'm fully dedicated and committed to business building. It's the passion of my life. Um, it, it doesn't feel like work, and I just do it every day because I love it. I wake up thinking about it. I go to bed thinking about it. Um, so uh, it's it's for me like really really special. And it's also there's again just you know competitive dynamic to it where I think when I see people you know hanging out in the U.S. on for example July Fourth is coming up soon. Everyone's gonna in New York. That's a founder. You know, they might be, you know, going out, like playing a little tennis or golfing or, you know, certainly some of the VCs are, um, you know, doing this. And I'm, I'm going to be staying put in the office, actually working. I'll maybe take a nice little walk, have a nice little meal maybe with someone. But I think I I have a lot of passion in the craft of, of, of what I do. And I, I do it every day very, very aggressively. Amazing. Well, I don't think there's a better way to end than that because you clearly have the passion for it. It's not. It's certainly not for everyone, and it's no. certainly not for the faint of heart or people who don't want to at least put in um, some some pretty aggressive hours and some and pretty pretty challenging environments. But I think that um, may we all be as lucky to get to be excited and go to work the same way you are. And I actually feel the same. I feel like if you if you get to do what you love, it's a pretty good way to live your life. Totally. 
Thank you so much for the time, the candor, the openness on everything from childhood to fundraising to everything and really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you, Yuri, so much for being with us today. If you or someone in your family is dealing with autism and you would like to look more into this or you're looking for a great company to join that has an incredible mission, please go to www.elemy.com. For more stories like this, go to www.kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and you're not doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face moments of fear, vulnerability, and doubt that never make the headlines. So if Yuri's story resonated with you today, please join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut.